This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Welcome to Star Stuff. Today we'll be talking about um, life on Mars, life on other planets, human exploration, a whole gambit of fun topics. Um, and we'll, we're going to be using the combined smarts and um, knowledge of everyone on our show today, probably besides me, to um, think about what future human space exploration may look like. So with us today, we have two incredible guests. We have Dr. Rudy Opperman. Hi there. And uh, Dr. Kyler Keene. Hello. We also have our lovely Star Stuff co- uh, co-host, Haley Osborne. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, so thanks thanks for joining us. Haley, do you mind uh, starting us off with telling us a bit about our newest guest, um, Dr. Opperman? Yeah, totally. So uh, Dr. Rodolf Opperman, oh gosh, sorry. Uh, Dr. Rodolf Opperman is a lead systems engineer working at Momentus Inc., a young in-space transportation company based out of San Jose, California. Rudy has also worked at NASA's JEP Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, as a fault protector engineer on the Mars 2020 Perseverance rover. Psyche and the, uh, or is that how you pronounce it? Psyche. Psyche. Okay, I thought so. Psyche and the Mars InSight lander missions. Psyche, it's just a pretend mission. I know. (laughs) I read it and I was like, that's not right. Uh, so Rudy's research and career focus spans human spaceflight physiology, space hardware design, sensor fusion and control, orbital debris mitigation, space policy, and most recently, robotic space exploration and rendezvous. He, hold a ba- ho- he holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Pretoria. The, yeah. Where is that? Where is uh, that? In South Africa. Nice. Okay. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, And he holds advanced degrees in aeronautics and astronautics, as well as technology and policy from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. So, uh, So Rudy, thanks for being on our show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. And, um, you know, Kyler was on our 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 most recent episode, actually, and we begged him to come back to this one because it was such a fun conversation. And I feel like we just sped through because there was so much information. We were just like, it was a, <laughs> it was a speed race. Um, but just in case anyone missed that episode, a brief introduction. Uh, he works on Lowell Observatory Science Telescopes and is currently studying dark energy different than dark matter and trying to figure out why this mysterious matter is accelerating the expansion of our universe, which was a very creepy conversation. I suggest everyone go listen to that. Uh, So thanks for joining us again. Did I get that right, Kyler? Yeah, you did. And I had such a fun time last time I decided I needed to come back. Maybe I'll be the uh, Ken Jennings of star stuff. Yeah, I mean, any episode you want to be on, just let me know. Also, a bit of feedback. My mom really liked last week's episode. So oh, I love that. Mom. Hi, mom. When, when I was editing the podcast, my mom was a secondary editor. <laughs> I wow. sent it to her and have her edit it for us. So yay, yay for moms, right? <laughs> so I, um, I want to kind of start off versus like a more formal introduction. Um, 
I want to look at both of y'all's research. Um, what is the most fascinating thing your research has unveiled? So whichever of you wants to go first. I can uh, maybe start with, uh, since we talked about human exploration, um, you, you tend to grow up, most of us want to be astronauts growing up, being in this field. And uh, you kind of see the glamour side of being an astronaut, all the excitement, the adventure, and, and all of those things remain true for sure. Um, but one area that I would that, that was kind of eye-opening to me was the uh, physiological effects that space has on, on humans. Um, mm. Being in space, uh, you, you take a bit of a beating. Your body is not built for flying in zero gravity for extended periods of time. Uh, a lot of the astronauts, especially the ones who do what we call EVA, or extravehicular activity, mm -hmm. where they, uh, wear the spacesuits outside of the, um, the space station or outside of the space shuttle, they do extensive training to, to do this on orbit. So they would actually practice in a, in, a, in a giant water tank called the NBL or the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. So for every, say, every hour that they do a spacewalk, they do 10 hours, 8 to 10 hours in the water inside the spacesuit again. So they, they spend a lot of time in these suits. And my the surprising thing that I didn't know about before is how often a lot of these astronauts get injured in the suit. Some of them would lose their fingernails uh, inside these pressurized gloves. I even, I'm aware of one crew member who he surgically removed his fingernails before he went into space. What? Such that he, uh, these, uh, you know, fingernails won't impede the mission so he can focus on the mission and, and get the work done i saw your academic publications on that and that's something you hear about some of the problems astronauts have like sinuses and things like that but i would not have thought fingernails so i'm uh i'm i mean i would i would have loved to have been an astronaut too you know i've been applying every time there's a you know a call um, obviously didn't get the job where I'd be, you know, doing this podcast from space, but just the fact that there are so many thousands and thousands of people backing them up and thinking about all the things that can go right, all the things that can go wrong. Like how do we solve the fingernail problem for, for astronauts? That's so hardcore. That's, that's horrifying. That's horrifying. <laughs> they remove, they surgically removed their fingernails. Well, one, I, I, I know of one who did one this. Uh, some of them definitely have, <laughs> and the, the, it, the type of injury varies. Sometimes it's, you can't see anything, but it could be, your fingernails could be very sensitive. Other times the discoloration, like when you slam your finger in a door. Um, some and what of them, is this from, the glove? Inside the spacesuit glove. So it's a pressurized glove. Imagine you've got these thick sausages, essentially, or you're inside a balloon. The whole balloon is pressurized, so every motion that you have to do that's not the neutral position of the gloves, say the hands typically they in this orientation. So if you compress, like if you grab a tool or a handlebar, you're essentially fighting the suit. And every time that you have this um, actual loading on the finger pit, uh, the tips of your fingers, um, it affects the, the grip. Your hand's in there for a long time, maybe eight hours or more. So... Uh, Imagine it's, you know, it's kind of hot and sweaty. So it's a slimy uh, uh, environment where your finger is being continuously having this actual force on the fingertips being applied. Ew. And um, our research has shown, we looked at uh, blood perfusion. So as you grip, you know, when you, when you grip something tightly, your fingertips or the, the nail bed would go white. All the, 
mm. indicating all the blood that's leaving that area. And then repeatedly doing this, then the blood rushes back in. So this, this blood rushing back in or hyperperfusion, we think plays play a role as well. And it's interesting that it doesn't apply to all of the astronauts, maybe about 10%. Mm. And our research have, have looked at um, astronauts with generally bigger hands are more susceptible to this. So typically the male astronauts would have this more than the females would. Um, so it's it's quite the a range of of factors that that leads to this point. Yeah, that's. Um, I I almost want to say you know, it's humans weren't built to be in that um, kind of scenario. So of course there are going to be adjustments, but we're not really built for anything. We just sort of adapt and get used to wherever we are, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, actually, good point. Like the. Uh, in space, be, beyond just the gloves, um, you know, being in a zero gravity environment, after a while, a lot of the body, the physiological system uh, functions in the body adapts, like your cardiovascular system. There are definitely things that we still have to do to counter the fact that we're in zero gravity. So the astronauts on the space stations, for instance, would exercise up, up to an hour and a half, two hours a day, six days a week, just to maintain that loading on their bones and muscles. Otherwise, they're essentially a bedridden patient that uh, the muscles mm. would atrophy and the bone mineral density would decrease over time. So a lot of exercise just to, to stay as strong as you can be uh, for when you're back on Earth. That's horrifying. <laughs> but and they get still, taller still too, right? Yeah, and they get taller because of the there's not as much pressure on their joints. Exactly, so. yes. Maybe up to two inches, five centimeters uh, elongation of the spine. And one that we lovingly refer to as chicken legs, because of the zero gravity environment, the fluid that are typically pooling in your legs in a 1G on Earth, they, these would now be distributed throughout the body. So typically they would have puffy faces, their legs would look really skinny up there. So um, quite the, a different... Uh, I mean, you're describing the like traditional alien... Like, what is that? Like, you know what I mean? Like big heads, spindly legs, a little bit taller, no fingernails. Like, maybe it's, yeah. Watched, has anybody watched The Expanse? I thought they did a really good job there of um, the physiological changes that would happen to people who live their entire life in space. Absolutely. And and I think um, that kind of touches on if, if we were to, to have a Mars colony and people live there for an extended period of time, like the belters in, in Expanse, coming back, uh, Earth gravity would be really a struggle for somebody whose body is is kind of used to Martian gravity, which is about half that, that we have on Earth, three, three-eighths of, of Earth gravity. They'd so end up looking like Martians. <laughs> so they definitely, um, there's some perks, you know, when you first go there, I think you can jump a little higher, you're a little stronger. Um, mm -hmm. But then if you ever plan on coming back to Earth, I think that's when the it's going to be more difficult. Well, we see that even here on Earth. Like uh, I know here in Flagstaff, because of um, how high up we are, people will come here to train and run here in Flagstaff so that when they go back down to sea level, they're actually a little bit stronger and a little, I mean, it's insane. Like thinking of the scale of this, even just that little bit can affect someone's in body's physiology and then just jumping to another planet. Right. Who's to say? And, mm -hmm. and there, the um, so you're right. The, the pressure, the air pressure, uh, being different, um, have effects on the body. But then on Mars, 
there's the atmosphere is about one percent that we have from from what we have here on Earth. So much less dense. So for things like helicopters, like with the recent uh, Mars mm-hmm. uh, Perseverance rover, for for an airplane or a helicopter to be able to fly there, even though the gravity is less, so you have to fight less of less weight to get off the ground. The the blades would have to spin much faster to create that same amount of lift to get up there. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. just the atmosphere on on Mars is already very different from what we have on Earth. And then, of course, on the moon, there's no atmosphere. So so there, right. a helicopter would have a hard time flying. And for people traveling there, there's also the issue of no, uh, no magnetic fields um, deflecting the cosmic rays. So there's people living there long term would be more susceptible to cancers and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, in, in my mind, and I think most would agree that the radiation concern, the radiation risk is, is the biggest reason, uh, you know, apart from funding and other reasons that, that we don't have humans on space, on Mars yet, because exactly like you said, uh, Kyler, that if, if we fly to Mar- a human to Mars, say it takes us six months to get there, that whole time we're not inside the Earth's magnetic field. So you're exposed to these uh, cosmic rays, um, you know, supernovas exploding, all kinds of radiation particles that are hitting your body. Um, some of it we can shield for, some of it you just slow them down so they really make more damage, mm-hmm. some of the alpha particles. And so um, it, and it's really... Big, if there are big issues like a solar storm, you probably want to have like a lead coffin you can retreat to. Exactly. For, you know, until that passes. Until it gets exactly right, Yes. I picture don't like so when I picture life on Mars, I don't picture people actually like wandering about Mars. I I guess I I picture structures that they would live within mm-hmm. versus and would that mitigate any of those concerns or not really? Uh, to some extent, I I also refer to the um, the Martian movie with with Matt Damon. Yeah, um, and I think that that's a good. There's a lot of good uh, factual. Um, Factually correct items to to that story to the mm-hmm. to the book, um, but I think for long term and similar to what NASA is thinking for for extended lunar stay, it makes sense to try and have the the habitat submerged under the ground so you have that additional oh. layer of soil that could essentially help, like you said, for lead encasement um, that can kind of help protect from some of that. So much so that if if there is a solar flare. As you mentioned, um, we know it's about eight minutes for the light to, to reach us here. Mm-hmm. So if we have astronauts on the, on the moon and we get the word of uh, a solar flare, they have eight minutes to try and dig as deep and as quickly as they can to try and get away or get some, some layer of protection. And it, I, I saw a fascinating graph um, back in the 50s, 60s, when we had um, our, our Apollo lunar missions that they were essentially lucky that all of these missions, you could see them occurring and then between them, these spikes of solar mm-hmm. activity that if they were to align with one of those, they probably would not have made it just because oh my of God. that um, exposure. Yeah. I remember that being contemplated in various sci-fi, like I think it was James Michener's space novel or the, the TV show that that was turned into that that happened to one of the missions. Mm. Speaking of sci-fi, um, have have y'all read The Martian? Are you familiar with that mm-hmm. author? Have you read his newest work, um, Project Hail Mary? Not yet. No, I want to though. Same oh, here. Okay. It's been it's been recommended to me. I know of it. Um, I just I finished it. it yet. So it's like just on my it? mind. 
oh my God. Yes, <laughs> it is so good. And it's about, you know, human exploration um, into a, a distant galaxy and all of the, and, you know, just like in the Martian when it was very scientific, almost like um, and a catalog of, of how things went wrong and what he would do on his day to day. It was very similar, very hard in the science. So it was, awesome. I mean, I, I hate to admit a lot of my knowledge of our topic today comes from a sci-fi book, <laughs> but it's true. Honestly, me too. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. some, some sci-fi books that I've read. If you're talking about um, generation ships, I think Asimov wrote Founding Father. That's one of my favorite short stories. No, sorry, The Oceans Are Wide is the, the generation mm -hmm. ship. Mm -hmm. Father is another one about uh, trying to colonize a planet that has an ammonia atmosphere, which is also mm -hmm. an interesting... Um, oh, interesting that, that was in Project Hail Mary, too. With a, mm -hmm. It was an ammonia atmosphere. It was fascinating. Um, and also just thinking about and hypothesizing about possible life on other planets and the things that they would have to have um, grown to make it normal. One of the things was even counting. So we have a, a base 10 uh, math language because we have 10 fingers. Um, and that just changes the mathematic language pretty decently if you have anything different than that. So anyway, it's fascinating. Um, Kyler, what about you? What was the uh, most fascinating thing that your research has unveiled? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I started off my, my research career in a very different. It was doing neutrino astronomy. Mm -hmm. um, I think we mentioned this last time, but didn't really get into it, where I was mm -hmm. using a detector in the ice at the South Pole that would actually look, look down through the Earth. So it would be looking for neutrinos, which can pass all the way through the Earth. Um, so the Earth would block everything else out. So if we saw a signal coming up through the Earth, we knew it had to be a neutrino. What's a neutrino? I'm sorry. It is a subatomic particle that is very, very small. It hardly interacts with anything. Like I said, it can pass all the way through the Earth. Um, so just like we get cosmic rays of all sorts, I mean, photons are a flavor of cosmic ray, I guess, but you can also have protons and electrons. Neutrinos are just another particle like that with very special properties. So we were actually trying to see these from astrophysical sources like supernovae or galaxies or gamma ray bursts. So I was studying these stars that would um, explode or sort of implode into a black hole, but at the same time, they would release a whole bunch of energy outward. And in theory, they would be producing neutrinos as well. And it turns out for my um, graduate research, I saw exactly zero neutrinos. Oh, from, no. from oh. But that was an interesting result because we had theories predicting that we were supposed to see you know, some number bigger than zero so we could rule out those theories. And I think we still haven't seen those neutrinos from these sources yet. We've seen them from other places. Um, so that was sort of the start of my career. Mm -hmm. And then I got into, um, because I was doing both particle physics and astronomy at the same time, that's what got me into the dark energy survey collaboration. They wanted people with um, sort of big data experience and what, what traditional particle physicists were doing, but who also knew astronomy. And that's, that, honestly, I, I would say my research has been less impactful across my career than the um, instruments that I've helped build that have enabled other people to do research. I understand. So it's the technology, the, the dark energy camera that we talked about last time, the Starbugs, things like that. Even now where um, you know, 80, 90% of my time is actually 
managing the technology group, but it's still enabling other people's science. And I think that's that's the most impactful thing I've done, I would say. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, let's, um, let's kind of get into it. Kyler, you obviously you have an intense knowledge of just like this deep, I want to say deep space, but I don't want to use that term incorrectly, but um, this like this dark energy out there and kind of how it's affecting the universe. So I would assume you also have a perspective on like the age of the universe and how the universe has unfolded itself. So uh, astronomers and astrophysicists who study that stuff generally call themselves cosmologists. Right, which is your title, right? Sure. (laughs) That's what we put on the website. I study <laughs> cosmology, so yes. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I do too, but yeah. Right. So cosmology is a study of sort of the, the largest scale that we can observe. So we can, we can see that the universe is approximately 13.7 billion years old. But interestingly, it's 92 billion light years across the observable universe that we can see. And you're trying to do the math in your head and figuring out that it doesn't work. And that's exactly right. Because, again, that goes back to the expansion and the accelerating expansion. If the universe were all, if just as it were right now, if it were 13.7 billion years old, we'd only be able to see 13.7 billion light years in any direction. But because the stuff beyond that used to be closer and is now expanded out, we can actually see things beyond just that 13.7 billion light years. So we can actually see 92 billion light years. And is, is there stuff out beyond that? Sure, why not? Probably. We just can't see it right now. Okay, I, I could be missing this completely, but does that mean there are some things that are traveling faster than the speed of light? Because it could only travel so fast, right? That, so there aren't things traveling faster than the speed of light. There is the universe, it's the space between objects, which is not a thing in of itself, it's just empty space, that can expand at a rate such that things that we can see now, we won't be able to see in the future because they are, their recession velocity is faster than the speed of light. Again, they're not moving at that speed, but the space between us and them sort of integrated over the whole path means that that, that distance is going away from us faster than the light can get to us. You got to love fiction writers and astronomers thinking (laughs) like, wow, look at this, this terrifying environment. Let's go there. Like, (laughs) (laughs) let's go there. That sounds fun. So like getting into that. So Kyler, you've got this insane perspective. My brain's not completely wrapped around it yet. Um, and, and Rudy, you know, you know what it would take for humans to adapt even just on a, a planet in our galaxy, but I feel like have perspective for just life out there in this inhospitable place that, you know, I never wanted to be an astronaut. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Like this, these people are crazy, but, um, let's kind of marry those two things and talk about, um, human exploration and the possibility of other life out there. And I did want to note that this is somewhat of um, a part of Lowell Observatory's like legacy and history. Um, I, I think that a lot of the fascination with alien life forms, and at least in the public eye, um, has roots right here at Lowell Observatory. 
Yeah. Um, our founder, Percival Lowell, he was actually really interested in the possibilities of life on Mars. And uh, he was very vocal about this and he got like lots of press. He wrote a bunch of books about it. Um, he actually led uh, his uh, his theories led to the term Martian and this whole like space mania in the 1900s. And um, he was actually uh, directly quoted by um, uh by H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds, he uh, inspired him to write that book. And that was kind of- I did not know that. Yeah, that was the book that like launched aliens into science fiction. So uh, Lowell Observatory, we've got a a long history of aliens here. And uh, because we have this long history of aliens, we would like to know what your thoughts are about life on other planets. Yeah, Uh, let's rip that Band-Aid off. (laughs) I know Kyler discussed this briefly in the last episode, so we just kind of want to like expand from there. You know, what what are your thoughts? Nitty gritty. Rudy, do you want to go first? Uh, Sure. I I know I can at least speak to to Mars in that I think the consensus is that we don't expect to find life there right now, but the search is for signs of ancient life. Oh. So for the for the Mars Perseverance, Perseverance rover, um, collecting data samples, rock samples, and ultimately the, the next mission, the aim is to bring those back here uh, with a, a sample return mission so that we can study it in a, in a laboratory environment with more uh, better instruments that we could, could possibly fly to Mars to do it there uh, in that mm-hmm. environment. So NASA would not... Um, so see, they would not um, make any claims that we have found life on Mars, but right. that is the, the reason for this current mission to see if there are um, signs of, of ancient life on that planet. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't they have like these tubes that are like the cleanest things we've like ever made that they sent out there to collect these samples? Exactly right. Yes, these uh, I think it's 40, I think 43 was the total. Of these sample tubes that were that currently lives inside the belly of the Perseverance rover, mm-hmm. and the idea is that we could uh, drill a rock sample and then deposit it into one of these tubes, and then the rover will be depositing them in, in strategic locations so that the next mission can come and collect them, put them on a, a smallish rocket uh, that would uh, then be launched and return those samples to Earth. And mm-hmm. um, you're right that these have to be the really the cleanest that they could possibly be because if not if we bring any contaminants from earth there maybe a pathogen or some bacteria or anything mm-hmm. and then it's still present in these tubes and we bring the tubes back and we find something and we're like look we found life on mars well, yeah. it's got human dna wait a second <laughs> one of the technicians licked the tube before he put it inside the rover what? so what we want to make sure <laughs> there was this mission to the moon that Brought tardigrades along? How is that even allowed? Oh my god, I remember reading about that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just see what would happen. What could go wrong? <laughs> I just think I think it's hilarious that they dropped all these tardigrades. And so like if you're technically thinking about it, we've found life on somewhere other than Earth, but we put it there. So <laughs> we made the first aliens. <laughs> so To me, one of the important things to think about when talking about life on Mars in particular is pareidolia, 
which is just a fancy word for C, things that aren't there. Like one of my favorite computer games in the 90s was XCOM UFO Defense, where you go and investigate the face. Of course it is. On Mars. Um, <laughs> but that and the canals, even back in Principal Lowell's day, was seeing things that weren't there. It's either you know, maybe it was you were seeing the reflection of the blood vessels in the back of his eye or something mm-hmm. in the optics of the telescope. But just um, keeping keeping that in mind, that, that there's a lot of ways that we can fool ourselves. I think it was um, Richard Feynman who, who said that, you know, science is about bending over backwards to not fool yourself. And you're the easiest person to fool much more than anyone else. You can convince yourself, oh, I've found this or I've gotten discovered cold fusion or I found life on Mars, whatever. And it's really, mm-hmm. you just want it to be true so badly that you sort of short circuit your critical faculties at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that's even true. Um, when I was a, a magazine editor, we even talked about that in a small way where your brain just kind of fills in information that it wants to see and uh, can really mess you up when you're editing something because your brain's just like, oh yeah, that word was there. You, you read that word. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I'd like to kind of backtrack just it, this conversation reminded me of something. Um, I remember reading about a theory that life, um, there were, I think we talked about this on a podcast before with Wesley Haley, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were three extinction events on earth about, is that correct? Where life had to, is it more than that? A whole bunch. I was going to say there's a lot. Yeah. And the one that led to our life, it has been hypothesized that it was actually leftover life from something that impacted us that hit another planet. This kind of theory. Have Mm -hmm. you guys heard of this in, in your research about life on earth? Panspermia is a a fun idea. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we'd, so that's the idea that life is seated throughout the galaxy, either intentionally or otherwise. Maybe uh, it hitches a ride on a an asteroid to to some other planet. I think right, that would right, be right. it would be hard to quantify the likelihood of that. I think all the life we've got on Earth, from what we can tell, descends from a common ancestor. I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but that's right. my understanding. So it's not like half the the life is native and the other half is inexplicable. Where does it come from? So I don't see evidence for that, you know, just a bit that I've I've seen for for Earth. But I mean, that's exactly why we're doing planetary protection, so that we mm. we don't have to worry about things like that. So, in principle, it it could very easily happen. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I was expecting to say there's no way. <laughs> um, wh- whether life can you know go across the galaxy that way is less like I mean maybe tardy right. age, but. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but right now we are looking into Mars and possible previous uh, civilizations on Mars. Can you go into that, Rudy, a little bit about what kind of life are we talking about? Life that's like the the in like the really tiny little bug life, or are we talking about? life that could have evolved into something we'd recognize as an alien form. So the, the consensus is that um, if there was life, it would have been microbial, like very small, mm. a long time ago, 
I think everybody would be very shocked if a green little green man walks up to the <laughs> rover and touches it. Um, so, so that's. You're not expecting to see language or any evidence of that on Mars. Correct. You're just looking Absolutely for the not. small. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and that, you know, that's also not my field uh, yeah. specifically, but I, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, and then from the experts that, um, that they've ruled out any current life, but, mm -hmm. but looking in the, the most plausible places, like for instance, where this rover landed is in a Delta old, uh, river Delta, essentially, um, where there used to be water on Mars. Right. So by studying the soil there, um, inferences can be made about it, it's a it's a likely place if there was life to find it there. Mm -hmm. I've also read that Venus is a likely planet. So it's it's got the advantage of the, the thicker atmosphere than Mars. Right. But I I don't know exactly when in its past the greenhouse uh, runaway greenhouse effect took hold. So oh. It would have had to be before that. Right now it's what eight hundred and something degrees. Jeez. right on the surface so yeah. you're not going to have anything now I mean part, part of the thought was you know maybe in the upper atmosphere where it actually is you know liquid water temperature maybe mm -hmm. but I, I don't see how it would have started there it would have to have you know fled there after mm -hmm. the greenhouse effect um, happened so I, I think at some point the qu question to me that I'm uh, for Venus in particular is it's sort of a race between when did the when did the temperatures start taking off and how long would it have taken life to um, arise and evolve there? Right. Yeah. That's fascinating though. Venus is my, one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> on Mars right now, we've got a whole bunch of really cool technology. Could you just give us a quick list of all of the technology that is roaming around Mars? Uh, sure. If I, if memory serves well, uh, I think one of the most interesting and most relevant to human uh, space exploration is what we call the MOXIE experiment. Um, hmm. That is a small, essentially a box that's flying, that flew on the Perseverance rover. And we use it to extract oxygen out of the carbon dioxide atmosphere on Mars. Hmm. Um, it's a, essentially a technology demonstration mission, so very small amounts of oxygen. But the idea is to use you use electrolysis to uh, chemically break up the the elements of the CO two molecules, and then you extract the oxygen and the carbon monoxide um, at a very small scale. So as a proof of concept, showing that it works, measuring the amount of oxygen that's generated. And then we we ultimately mm. we put it through a filter to make sure again no planetary um, protection issues that we don't introduce anything to the atmosphere. And then we just release both the oxygen and the um, CO molecules that are, as a result, uh, we just release back into the atmosphere. So we're not making use of them now, but the plan is to, we can scale up this technology and then uh, in, a, in a future mission, send it there and it can be used to start generating oxygen, both for, for humans to breathe when they work and live there. And the oxygen could also be used um, for fuel, for the oxidizer, if, if for the uh, return trips from Mars. Are y'all terraforming Mars? I think this would be a, a very small first step, but but the scale that we're talking project about. Some Project Genesis stuff, man. Just build it up to the giant reactor from total recall to yeah. its worth of atmosphere. Yeah. Exactly. I was thinking from the Martian how he had the little the little greenhouse where he was like, yeah. that's, mm -hmm. that's what it sounds like. Yeah, it does. 
that was the, not to spoil it, but I think this was written in 1965 anyway. So Founding Father, the, the story I mentioned was... Spoilers. The, they, um, they actually do that. They, they start planting earth plants on this planet and the, the plants can survive the ammonia atmosphere. And the, the punchline is that eventually, you know, when people come thousands of years later in the future, they'll actually come to an earth-like atmosphere because they've been able to get the, they've been able to terraform enough that the plants could take hold, even if they, you know, the people themselves didn't survive. This is so Star Trek and I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, and and mm-hmm, go I, I just wanted to add that, um, I think there's a lot to be said of trying to utilize what is on a planet or on the moon and the lunar surface to essentially utilize it, um, what we call ISRU or in-situ resource utilization. Mm-hmm. If we can use the, um, the water ice, same on the moon, and we know there's water there, we can extract the hydrogen and the oxygen. It's also useful for us um, using the, the regolith or the, the, the rock, essentially, and you can use that to build structures, maybe 3D printing in the future. So, so looking at ways that we can see what we need on these in these remote locations and how we can utilize what's available. I, I really love. Um, there's a game called Terraforming Mars that I, I play with my, my family, and it's it was made by a PhD in physical chemistry or something. So it's it's super nerdy, and I love it. But it's it's got so many of the things you would need to do in it to to successfully terraform, like crashing asteroids into the planet even like blowing up nukes to increase the temperature something maybe you want to do that one in particular you lose points for um, <laughs> but um, to, to me the i think the biggest problem as i understand it is just the the pressure the the amount of atmosphere that would be held onto the planet by gravity even if you made an atmosphere it would go away very very rapidly it would just slow mm-hmm. off into space so it's i mean it's much much easier to terraform someplace like earth than mars Right. Um, so um, I mentioned Katie Mack last time, her, her book, The yeah. End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. She's also um, quite a presence on Twitter, and she's had um, several threads about that. You know, why don't we spend all this effort, instead of terraforming Mars, why don't we terraform Earth a little bit, improve the yeah. environment here, <laughs> you know, get rid of some of the things that are hostile to life here first. I have a kind of piggyback question. So you were talking about how like the atmosphere would just kind of dissipate. Is there any, um, I guess, any plans or any ideas about maybe introducing like a magnetic field around Mars? That would be cool. I don't even know how you do that. I don't either. I heard someone saying like something about sending something to go in front of mars i have no idea this was a couple of years ago so <laughs> well i know as, as a first step trying to um, measure the the magnetic field that is there um, so nasa also sent uh, a previous mission called the insight lander this one was not a, a rover that had wheels to drive around it essentially it uh, touched down and was single spot, and that's where it stayed. And it had a, it had, it's still active. It's still on Mars. It has a very, very sensitive seismometer that it placed on the Martian surface. And the idea is that it can measure um, the faintest, uh, even if it, if an a car, a asteroid would hit the the surface, it could pick that up. And and um, it was 
for me, it was fascinating to hear um, the way it was explained to me is that at, at JPL in, in uh, Pasadena, California, where this, the sensor was um, put on the, the spacecraft and shipped off to the launch base, that it could pick up oceans crashing on the seashore that's about maybe an hour's drive away. Um, again, I think a lot of filtering would have to happen um, for all the other noise that's around, but that's kind of the sensitivity that we're talking. So, so being able to pick up um, essentially echoes inside. If you imagine you have Mars, you have the, the core inside and you have these shock waves traversing all around and it's being, um, it just reverberates inside the, the crust of Mars, that this sensor is, is sensitive enough to pick this up and it can, we can learn about the mantle, we can learn about the makeup and that also relates oh, yeah. to the magnetic field uh, that is being generated. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not up to speed what the latest findings have been uh, using that instrument, but, but that's definitely something that folks have been looking into. That's really cool. That is, yeah. Mm -hmm. That that's the one with the mole that penetrates. The, that's right. Yeah, that, that was kind of a fun story too. That they they tried to get it to go into the surface and it would wouldn't go down. So just some of the technical solutions to that problem were also kind of fun and interesting. It wouldn't yeah. go down into the crust. It so the mole experiment was was exactly like Kyler said. It was the same mission. Also, it was located on top of the. Um, the deck of this inside lander. And then it has a robotic arm that it would place these instruments um, onto the surface. And they found with the mole that um, they've done experiments in the ground, but the mole would not, um, it's almost like it's, it's hitting a resistance. So it's not being, a, it, the idea was it was supposed to, through an internal mechanism where it would kind of percussion down into the, the ground. It's supposed to go down, I think 16 feet, if I remember right, fairly deep. And um, they were not able to to get it to to bite to 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 really make mm. a hole and to keep going down. It would just back out. Um, mm. They tried many different things. Those poor scientists. <laughs> for, uh, yeah, for quite a while. Um, and the last I heard is that so that mission launched in 2018. So it's been um, four years now that they they essentially called called it on the on the mole experiment because it, they weren't able to make it work. So the um, a lot of good data from the seismometer, and then another one that um, that actually did not go onto the surface, but two uh, very sensitive radio um, sensors on on this on top of the payload deck of this this lander would send signals, and then looking at the deltas, it could actually measure the wobble of Mars. So oh, wow. depending on when it sends that uh, those radio signals are received. Um, by Earth, we can do calculations to see, okay, how does it wobble around its axis as it's spinning, you know, similar to the Earth's, uh, the 23 degrees tilt that we have. Mm -hmm. So a lot of interesting things, but sadly, the the temperature data from the mole, um, they've not been able to collect, Aww. at least up to date, <laughs> as far as I know. So we've talked about, like, issues with Mars. So what kind of training would humans have to go through to like live on Mars full time? Taking all that Besides a lot of into therapy. account. You have to take off your fingernails. <laughs> yeah, apparently God. Well, for one, you need a better designed spacesuit. So uh, you don't have that issue anymore. Yeah. And in fact, a, a lot of um, uh, research has been done on you know, how do we make these sci-fi looking spacesuits that are mm -hmm. one easy to take on and off? Because if it's a skin tight suit, 
you needed to have to apply sufficient pressure similar to what a gas pressurized suit, the current suit that they use on the space station does. So the, the US um, space suit is, uh, I think it's 4.3 uh, PSI. So it's, it's fairly stiff and um, you're, you're essentially inside a pressurized balloon. But um, studies have been looking at, into mechanical counterpressure suits where it's essentially just a, something that's very tight that creates that same pressure on your skin um, and it, it works great on cylindrical face uh, parts of your body, like your arms, your fingers, your torso. But then areas like under the arms or the groin, that's where the issue is because you need you need that same pressure everywhere. Similar to a scuba diver, if you're under the water, you can go down fairly deep because your whole body is in a uniform pressure. But if one area was not at pressure, then that's where all the, the liquid, all the blood would pool, and it would uh, you know it would get bad pretty quick. So. Um, Absolutely, a spacesuit specifically designed for for um, for safety on that surface, mm -hmm. and also mobility. So you can climb, you can explore, mm -hmm. and you want it to be rugged and robust because um, if you have this gas pressurized suit and you slip on a rock and it cuts open the suit, ten seconds later all the air is vented and you can't breathe. Yikes. Where if it's a mechanical counterpressure suit, maybe it's a local cut, it's a local, local issue, but you know you can still breathe. You can make it back into the, the rover or the habitat. Mm -hmm. and um, you can Slap some duct tape on it. I exactly. was going to say, would that work? Because <laughs> that's well, what like, they did in yeah. the Martian. Yeah. 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 Let's keep the pressure on it. Um, and then the other one, both Mars and the moon is fairly dusty. Um, and to be able to to have a suit that would work in that dusty environment because you don't want to, every time you go out, you track in a lot of dust that's in your airlock, gets into the filters or in, even mm -hmm. inside the habitat uh, the environment. joints of the suit. Exactly, mm -hmm. yes. The, the bearings inside the, like in the shoulder joints. Um, that really came to surface with the Apollo missions where the astronauts would, you know, they would go out of the lunar lander, come back in, take the suits off and they stay in there and they sleep. Everything gets full of these these uh, lunar regolith dust. That is, if you look at it under a microscope, it's these rugged, edgy little, it's very mm -hmm. corrosive. It would like tear up the suits, tear up the bearings, and some of the, they would inhale and they start coughing because it's, oh, you know, man. it's um, causing havoc inside their, their lungs. See, I so, thought nanobots would take over a lot of these problems. <laughs> have a nanobot suit, man. So NASA just actually had a, a competition for grade school kids that I helped to, to judge. They were um, designing a lunar rover, and one of the criteria was how do you deal with the lunar environment, like dust. So there were some really creative ideas from, from some of these kids. They had um, their lunabotics project with, you know, maybe if we you know, put an electrical field on it, it will you know, repel all the negatively charged dust or whatever. A kiddo so, said that? Yeah. Kids they are better, so smart. Yeah. Man, they better ask for that paycheck from NASA. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with all this in mind, like what what kind of life on Mars would humans be facing? I mean, you were saying with that pressurized suit, they would be able to like climb and walk around and everything. So would we try to make it as similar to like life here on earth as possible? So my opinion is, you know, it's absolutely the, the romantic aspect of your, this trailblazer explorer, you're out um, in the universe, uh, you know, astronaut, meaning like a, a Voyager star Voyager. And um, 
as exciting as that is, I think living on Mars could get old pretty quickly <laughs> because you will, you either has to be, you have to be inside the spacesuit at all times. There's no, you can't just run outside and take a fresh breath of air. Um, I mean, you bad. could, but it would probably that be would bad. Be bad. <laughs> very, very, very. Yeah, you could do it once. <laughs> yes. And uh, alternatively, you're inside the, the habitat at all times. Um, and I, I would think that people who lived there for an extended period of time would really um, kind of miss what we have here on Earth, stuff that we take for granted, like the waves, the ocean, the, um, the birds, the sky, the clouds, trees, everything that you see here that's beautiful that you won't have there. Uh, I kind of imagine if somebody is, is a second generation Martian, they come back, one, they have to deal with the gravity, and two, they're going to just blow, be blown away with this stuff that we see every day that we just we don't even think about. I think as hard as the, the physical environment is, the psychological, mm. um, just long-term, maybe trauma is the right word for it, would be, would be hard to deal with. I mean, we, we study that on Earth, and we... Um, I mentioned the the neutrino detector at the South Pole. I didn't actually go there, but we had people who wintered over there. And from you know, February to November, you can't get in and out. You can you're just stuck there. So it's it's very much like space. You you can physically go outside. You'd freeze to death without the proper protections pretty quickly. Um, but like one of the things they do before they send winter over is that a they take out their appendix. But B, what? And, their, and their wisdom teeth. Um, what? Because they don't have doctors or, you know, surgical dentistry facilities down there. So they do it uh. preventatively. But B, they also give them a very rigorous psychological evaluation. Like, is this person going to snap from not seeing the sun for nine months? Yeah. Is this and person the right sad. amount of crazy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the right type of crazy. The right type of crazy. <laughs> If you had the opportunity, would you live on Mars? You want to go first, Kyler? That's it's a hard one. I mean, um, everything I know and all the people I know and love are here. I think that would be hard to give up. I wouldn't want it to be a one-way trip, uh, mm -hmm. and it would be for several years. I mean, the the chance to explore and you know go out there. Yes, I would love to be an astronaut. I would love to go to Mars. I think. Um, but I don't fault anybody who wouldn't. Like there, there's a lot going on here too that is important to to me. So it, it would be a, a hard call. Yeah. Um, being an astronaut, yes. Going up to the space station, coming back in a couple months, absolutely. Yeah. Mars is is a bit more than that. Absolutely. Terrifying. I uh, I joke and say that my wife will have the ultimate answer on that one. <laughs> Let me go. Um, and absolutely. I think something more short term, like, like I think it would be very exciting to be on the moon for a while. Um, a lot of the same really? aspects that you would see on Mars, you jump higher, the gravity there is even less. So you can do some cool things on, on the moon. Um, it's essentially a gray desert where Mars is a red desert. Mm -hmm. um, and if you need to, you can be home in three days. Closer to home. Uh, That's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah. Next verse, yeah you, you have some options. You can have a real-time conversation, more or less. The, the exactly. travel time is less than a second, a couple of yeah, seconds. a couple, I uh, think. But, and not eight minutes. Yes. Better than my Suddenlink connection. It would be very hard to do this podcast if you have to wait eight minutes for 16 minutes for a response. Yeah, uh, true. Yes. 
And what would the benefit of living on Mars be like for humans? Like, is this, um, are we, are we looking at like a manifest destiny scenario? Are we looking at just exploration? Are we looking at telescopes that are further out with few less atmosphere? Like what's the biggest benefit for being out there? Well, if you listen to Elon Musk, his whole goal for going to Mars is to make us a multi-planetary species so that if something happened to Earth, that Mm -hmm. we would survive and we would have another foothold to to keep going. I think for many that that, um, they can see the logic in that. Um, I think kind of a springboard also for further exploration deeper into, you know, to the outside outside of the solar system and beyond, I think is, is exciting prospects as well. The same reason we explore, you know, the top of the highest mountain peaks or the bottom of the oceans, because it's there. Yeah. And I, I think that would, it would be cool. Like that, just the cool factor alone would, is what would get, get me to Mars. Um, <laughs> but I do think, you know, long-term preservation of the species is, is reasonable. And I think, you know, on the thousands of years time scale, we should be, we should be working towards that. And there's lots mm-hmm. of small baby steps we can do to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think though, right now it's more important to, to, if we have all these terraforming tools and technology and skills, we've got a bunch of stuff we could fix here first. Yeah. Again, we should get out there eventually. Um, and I, I think there was um, an, an interesting letter written by, I think it was a, a nun written to the, the head of the NASA space agency, like, why are we doing this? Why are we spending all this money to go out to space when we've got, you know, poor and homeless people on Earth? And that's that's a very good question. I mean, that that is a question I ask myself when I, you know, I think about, yes, it'd be cool to go to Mars, but it would also be cool if everybody on the planet had food and a place to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I think the, to me, the answer to that is the, the same that the director of NASA gave, that we, we spend... Um, a very small amount of the, the nation's resources on space and the return on investment mm. is incredible. And just the technologies we get out of it, um, even things like being able to track the food that gets to the supermarket, like that's a clearly a good thing that happens on Earth. People get fed and that is enabled by technology we developed for space. Right. So there's, there is just on its own, there's, you know, the coolness factor that, Mm-hmm. But but there's also so much benefit to us. Like we, we, if we learn to terraform Mars, we will, in that process, have solved a bunch of the problems that are plaguing us here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No politics allowed on Mars, though. Can we just make that call now? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. So speaking of like really cool things. Are there any plans to send humans into deep space? That's definitely a one-way ticket, right? (laughs) To my knowledge, um, the moon and then onto Mars is definitely the the, uh, high up on everybody's radar right now. Uh, NASA wants to send humans back to the moon by 2025. And the time frame that, that they've given for Mars is the 2030s. So, you know, potentially within the next 10 years, Probably a little later than that, but definitely before the uh, the 30s run out. Um, and and frankly, I think private enterprises like like Elon Musk, SpaceX, they're well on their way to get there even earlier, earlier than, than NASA oh, does. That was my next question. Um, 
I, I was wondering about what the introduction of commercial space flight, um, like what how that would affect space travel. Yeah, no, uh, very exciting times for space. Um, you know, it was it's more than fifty years now since we've been on the moon, mm-hmm. and it's it's only recently what we call new space. Um, it, it's almost like the the investors, the financial markets, they've they've kind of realized, look, there's potential in space. So a lot yeah. of these small space startups, really innovative ideas are coming forth. And and I kind of, I think of Star Wars when I think of this, and that there's all these little, you know, unique little spaceships. It's not just one, two or three or four big mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. government agencies that that dictates what goes into space. A lot of small companies. I actually I moved off from from JPL to join a, a space startup. Um, focusing on on low Earth orbit missions, but but the idea is to expand to to do stuff in the what we call cislunar space so around the the lunar um, orbit mm-hmm. uh, for, from Earth and beyond. So mm-hmm. a lot of new things happening. Uh, w- one company recently they're called Spin Launch. They have technology uh, on the ground that they would spin up a rocket in a vacuum and then just release it. And that centripetal force, yes, would would launch this rocket, not all the way to orbit, but high enough (laughs) that it would just need a a fairly uh, small scale second stage to get it up to orbit. So we're going more toward Firefly versus Star Trek. Yes, yes. Um, So very exciting times. Small, the, the, the price is coming down. The fact that we have reusable rockets now is making space more accessible. Mm. The whole, um, Space tourism venture. There, there are companies working on space stations where you can go and do, have a holiday, vacation, go to the moon, fly around the moon. Right now, it's still expensive, mm-hmm. but I very much see this as going the same route as as air travel. Initially, it was only the the very privileged, yeah. those who have lots of money, to be able to do it. But the prices keep coming down. More access to space, um, opportunities to mine asteroids, get resources again, stuff that could benefit the Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot of opportunities now, so it's very exciting to be in this industry. Yeah, I can imagine. We've got so many more questions, but um, are unfortunately once again out of time. I don't know how that happened so quickly. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for your time to sit here and chat about all of these fantastic ideas, some of which are very real and already happening. So, um, yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And, uh, Kyler, thanks for coming back again. We'll see how many of these we can rope you into. (laughs) And if, um, if anyone has any questions, um, how can they reach out to y'all? My contact information is on the Lowell website, lowell.edu. Um, or if you want to replay this a couple of times, kkeen at lowell.edu, k-k-u-e-h-n at lowell.edu is my email. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to, to give my email address as well. Um, it's just my first name at gmail.com, but the first name spelling is a little interesting. So it's R-O-E-D-O-L. Ph mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So Rudolph, but instead of a U, it's an O E. Instead of an F, it's a PH. Rudolph <laughs> at gmail.com. 
Awesome. Well, if we um, thank you, and if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out the, to them directly. We also have a hashtag that you can use on Twitter called uh, it's hashtag Ask Star Stuff. So if you do hashtag Ask Star Stuff and you ask us a question, we'll get that over to the best person to answer it. Which luckily for us at an observatory, we have so many incredible uh, resources here. And if you haven't listened to the I Heart Pluto recording that Dr. Opperman was on on Super Bowl Sunday. Go through our YouTube channel and, and watch that presentation. It was really fascinating. And uh, if you haven't heard Kyler's episode, go one episode back to episode 10 and listen to that because that was a super fun conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for coming, guys. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 